0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Acura, an inmate
1: at the California State Prison San Quentin. This
0: call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin death row, and without a gang, without a group of people around me, it was just me.
2: Soon after you went into to be on death row
0: <laughs>
2: Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm Lou McGuero. We have a really interesting episode today on Diane Downs. And I kind of stumbled on this while I was surfing YouTube, and I was like, wow, this is an interesting story, because this woman is nuts, just nutty as a fruitcake. So we're going to talk about that. First, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram, and facebook at death row diaries and check out our patreon page that is patreon.com slash death row diaries where you'll get access to bonus content i just uploaded an episode on bill suff who's a serial killer who lives with you on death row for the time being bill so you'll want to check that out um also the same content is available on the Spotify app through Anchor so you'll see locked episodes. That's that's the Patreon content. Same thing. Okay, got that out of the way. Bill, did you want to uh, direct the audience somewhere before we begin?
0: Well, yeah. I wanted the audience to be aware that I do have a newsletter. It comes out weekly. Um, they can go to my website com, and sign up for the newsletter or they can go to the They can go to the Instagram account and go to Linktree, and there they can sign up by pressing a button and just signing up for the newsletter as well. It'll give you content about what's going on with me. As Matt and I have spoken about in the last few weeks, I'm on a ticking time bomb right here, if you want to call that, because they're going to be coming to get me pretty soon. It could be any moment. It could be today. It could be tomorrow, and they'll be taking me off the death row and I will be going to add segregation pending transfer to another prison because my death sentence has been taken off of me. So good news. Um, uh, you'd want to get to know exactly what's going on with me and get that
2: content, and it's going to be available through my newsletter. Yes, so definitely sign up for that. Okay, Diane Downs, uh, not a good mother. Is that a good place to start? yeah i think that's probably the best way to start
0: she is you said it when the episode started there's something inherently wrong with this woman and it's based on this narcissism that she has she's narcissistic she's antisocial. she has serious emotional problems but she's a functioning person that you can never detect she's not a serial killer she's a person that killed and we can understand her reasoning, although it's obscure, that's abstract, and it's completely nuts. But you kind of see the logic that she used in order to attempt to murder
2: all of her children. I had doubts. Uh, I felt uh, when I sat and I sized up the situation, and I saw at uh, one point that uh, Diane had been shot in the left arm, and she's right-handed. And I made the comment to the police department there that night. Uh, it looks to me like Diane did it because the children have been shot in the chest, and Diane has only been shot in the arm. And I, I says, it really looks like she did it. Uh, that's uh, That really is the thing that spurred them to go and check, uh, to do the Q-tips, run the Q-tips around her finger to check for the powder residue and to also spray her hands to see if she held a gun.
1: I have been through that night so many times, I've even been through it with my psychologist. It's very hard, it's very tearful, there are a lot of memories that, um, I don't know. A lot of people when something traumatic happens to them, they suppress it immediately. I kept those memories. Because I knew that I was the only person that was going to be able to tell them what happened when we got to the hospital. And when I got there, the first thing I said was, call the doctors. Second thing was the blood type. Third thing was, call the cops. Because they've got to, they've got to find him. And so I had to remember as much as I could remember. When this man shot my daughter, my first reaction was to snap back to my childhood to the pain that had happened to me back then, my marriage, my entrapment by society. This man was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He had more power because he had a gun. He was in control and I was not. And I had, there was nothing I could do. And I stood there and I looked at Christy reaching and the blood that just kept gushing out of her mouth. And and what do you do? You just stand there trapped. And then, and then the gun kept firing and firing and firing. And it, it, it made, it was monotonous. It just kept going. It was like a slow motion picture. And then he swung around towards me. And I, and this is something that I did not recall when I was explaining to the cops. Because there, it, was, it wasn't like a movie when I was telling them. I was telling them what happened, the important details. He shot my kids. I pushed him. I ran. And... When he swung around, he was pointing when he swung around, it hit the tips of my fingers. The gun hit the tips of my fingers, and that snapped me. And I went, wait a minute, I'm not trapped by society. I don't care if he is bigger. If I stand here and I say, yeah, here, take the keys. I mean, there's nothing I can do. You win because you have the gun. My kids are going to die. And I'm not going to let my kids die. And so instead of giving him the keys, I feigned throwing the keys He did not take time to point the gun and shoot me, obviously, because he would have shot me the same way he did the kids. When he was swinging in the direction of the keys, firing the gun, he hit my arm. Everybody says, you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. I have a steel plate on my arm. I will for a year and a half. The the scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. I don't think I was very lucky. I think my kids were lucky. If I had been shot the way they were, we all would have died. Except what? maybe Danny. What haunts you the most about that night? What do I see most is blood coming out of Christy's mouth. Because that's what I see. Um, I, I can't see Danny, and I can't see Cher. Sherry was laying on the floor, and... Driving to the hospital, I don't know the sounds that were made at the initial shooting because I was on the outside and all I could hear, I, I can't hear anything but gunshots. And I can I can see things, you know, I that's it. Driving to the hospital, I can smell blood. I can not hear Cheryl. Cheryl's not making a sound. Danny is just crying real, real soft. So, so that sound stays in my mind and the fact that Christy's choking, it just... And then I'm yelling at her and screaming at her to, to roll over on her face because I was trying to keep her from choking on her blood, and it just didn't dawn on me that she was shot in the chest and that the blood was coming from her, her chest, not going down into her chest. Um, to be honest, it made me a better person because I know all the mistakes. I know not what not to do to my kids. I know what to avoid. Uh, one thing is to not be married. <laughs> and that may seem very harsh, but I honestly don't believe that children need fathers. And they're nice to have around sometimes when they can do things to help you, but when they are mentally abusive, when they are harsh, and the way my ex-husband was, they're more a deterrent to the children than a help. And unless you can find a good father, there is no need for them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I guess she's conflicted about having children, uh, you know, that's an understatement, I think. But she's got a lot of issues surrounding it, right? Yeah, I mean, look, birth control is one, but
0: the, even in that sense, you kind of see the conflict in her. And to understand that, you have to go a little bit into her childhood. You know, she is um, she's brought up in a pretty conservative, strict uh, Christian home. And you know when, when children are brought up brought up in these homes that are just over stressful, over conservative, almost an obsessive level, you get a bit of issues. And she starts off very young, just begins to rebel. There's nothing serious. Here. She's not doing. You know, she's not lighting fires. She's not killing animals or torturing animals. But what she does do is she uses really. And this, we're getting this from her as well. Some of this is coming from her, and it's that she, at the age of twelve, her father molested her. According to her, her father. Hold on. This fucking dude's a moron. All right, cut that out. But okay, at age twelve, she says her father molests her. This comes from her. There was no police report. There was nothing that would suggest that this happened. Until she mentioned it. But most psychiatrists and psychologists would look at her timing and say, okay, something must have happened to trigger these responses from her. So at 12, according to her, she's molested by her father. At age 13, she attempts suicide by cutting her wrists. Could it have been that something happened between her and her father? It's possible. So, At age 14, she begins to rebel. And what I mean by rebel, she becomes promiscuous. She, and that is a sign, again, behavioral sciences, psychiatrists will tell you that this is a sign that something is going on. But she graduates from high school. She's an, an intelligent young woman. And she ends up meeting her future husband, Steve Downs, around this time. And she goes off to college. And where does she go? She goes to Orange County, to the city of Orange, where she goes into a uh, Baptist Bible college. And well, you think, well, she must be going, doing really well. She has her head on straight. She knows what she wants in life. But she's expelled from the school for promiscuous behavior. She's sleeping around. And it It disturbed the college so much that they asked her to leave. So she goes back to her parents' house. So that's all we have about her, about her and her childhood. But there are markers that would put any person, at least me, to raise an eyebrow as to why she's acting this way and what happened really in her childhood.
2: Yeah, it's tough to say. (laughs) Um, Because... So so being promiscuous like that, having an enormous body count, that could be, you know, a symptom of, of something that happened with the father, but I think there's also plenty of really nutty people who weren't molested who behave that way. But then again, I mean, what percentage of, like, porn stars were touched by an uncle? Probably something pretty substantial. So I don't know. It's a tough one. Yeah, this- and look, and we know she's manipulative.
0: We know that she is narcissistic. So this is, she's smart. So this is the perfect reason. And what do we always talk about, Matt? I always say that serial killers, people explain themselves. They try to explain the reasons to lessen the blow. That she tried to kill her children. Uh, it, it immediately makes you think that she's being manipulative. She's trying to... Uh, her a bit of sympathy for herself. Like, look, this is what happened to me. What I did was wrong, but this is why I did it. So I understand why she's doing it. Whether it's true or not, I think it's going to be a mystery for the rest of our lives. We're not actually going to know because uh, we can't rely on her as a source for this. But, look, right after that, she runs away from home. It's 1973. She marries Steve Downs. And really shortly after it, the following year, they have their first child, Christiane. And they follow with Cheryl Lynn, 1976, and then their son, Stephen Daniel, is born in 1979. They immediately get divorced after Daniel, they call him Daniel, his name is Stephen or Stephen, is, um, is born because her husband, Steve Downs, believes that the child is born of a result of an affair that she had. So this is a real problem. She's continuing with this promiscuous behavior. Now she's having an affair outside of her marriage and it's something that she continues to do. And it is the root, really, of her problem. And then she does something that, I mean, you, you wonder, you, you have to have a love for children or you're using them for a bankroll, because in 1982, after her divorce, she has even another child while acting as a surrogate. So uh, this puts a lot of thoughts in my mind as to what she's really thinking. Is she looking for love? Is she looking for a stability she can't find in her life? It's really it's really interesting
2: to see how she's going about doing this. Yeah, I don't know that... There aren't that many people that do this. I mean, I, she had, she became a surrogate just like, I, I guess to deal with her own issues or, or, it's like a fetish, almost. Possibly, it's really hard to tell, but
0: she's stable from the outside. Look, she works for the US Postal Service. She's a, a dedicated person that works. She's not on the side of hooky or you know, sex worker, no. He has a stable job, stable
2: career. Let me call back. Man, if you're a nymphomaniac, I don't know if you should be a mail carrier, although maybe you really should be a mail carrier. I mean, how many guys' houses did she duck into for a quickie on that route, right? You know, I never even thought about that. But, hey, I'm glad that you're co-hosting this show because, obviously,
0: you think in a different abstract <laughs> different view that I have. I never even thought of this, but yeah, I guess you, you know, you're, you're cruising in little, a little ice cream truck, you know, you have your mail there, and you're cruising, and guys doing his lawn, and hey, bye, well, hey, buddy, you know, hey, what are you doing later?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting viewpoint, but... Yeah, and she's yeah, walking, you know, you know, she's walking eight hours a day, she's probably, you know, body's pretty tight. Anyway, Bill, I'm, I'm going off, I don't want to... <laughs>
0: No, I was just laughing at what you said, the body's kind of (laughs) tight, Jesus, man, that is funny, but, so, look, for for all intended purposes, you, you look at this person from the outside, okay, how many people in the United States have affairs every year? Millions, okay, not that big of a deal, in terms of how often it happens. You know, she has a number of children. She's a surrogate. People would say, listen, she's a very caring person. She loves children. She offered someone something that they couldn't have, so she acted as a surrogate. Hey, great. Look, well, she's a postal worker. So from all intended purposes, she looks rather stable. However, her daughter, Cheryl Lynn, before well, her death, tells a neighbor that she's afraid of her mother. So there are things going on in that home there's no father there. It's just her and her kids that people don't know about. There's something going on people don't know. Enough to have a seven or eight-year-old child tell a neighbor that they're afraid of their mother. That's
2: pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, there's obviously a conflict because, because of what happens next, unless you believe Diane Down's story that a bushy haired man uh sort of commandeered their vehicle more or less on a dark, desolate rural highway. Um but that's that story was not believed by law enforcement. So why don't we get into the incident here? Yeah, it almost sounds good. like an Eagles song, Hotel California
0: on Dark Desert Highway. <laughs> but yeah, she everything doesn't really make sense what she says. And again, we have a person who is not a criminal in terms of a career criminal or an experienced criminal. So what she says is so first what happens is that in in May of nineteen eighty three, all three of her kids are shot while they drove home. And she for all intended purposes, she's also injured in the incident she has a, a, a bullet hole to the her forearm Um, She arrives at the hospital, brings in her kids, and they're shot. They're dying. Um, The young child, Cheryl, is deceased when they get there. Um, The the little boy is paralyzed from the waist down. The other child is also shot, and she has a stroke. Christine, who's the oldest child, has a stroke. And from the very beginning, it's very suspicious because how calm... um, Diane Downs is. And she says a lot of inappropriate things and things that don't make any sense. So when they question her, what happened? And of course, this took a while for them to start unraveling the story. She says that she was driving home and she decided to take the scenic route. I don't know how many people say take scenic routes to their home, but it's 9 p.m. at night and the kids are asleep in the car. 10 p.m., and again, how far is she from home that she decides to take a scenic route? She sees a strange man standing in the middle of the road that's flagging her down. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but even as a male, if I'm on a dark, desolate highway, and there's a man with bushy hair flagging me down, and I have my three children with me, I'm not stopping it. I don't give a damn what's going on. But according to her, she stops, she pulls over, and she gets out of her car to talk to the bushy haired guy. I don't understand how many people get out of their car and say, Just rolling the window, how can I help you? Is everything okay? You leave the car stuck, you're on, you have your foot in the accelerator. In case the person is trying to grab you, you hit the accelerator and you leave. Well, Not this time. She's outside the car, and she says that when she approaches the man, he demands her keys, which she refuses, and they get into a fight. At that point, he shoots her and then opens the driver's side door of the car where the kids are at, and according to her, he shoots the children in the car. And then she throws away the keys in the bushes. And while he is, his attention is diverted of the keys in the bush, or bushes, he runs to go get it. She jumps in the car and takes off. I don't know about you, Matt. That doesn't even sound possible. It sounds, it sounds
2: completely off. Yeah, especially the detail that I didn't really think about. But most people would not stop. But especially a mother with kids has such a protective instinct. Like, I'm sure there are women that might stop if they were alone. But, you know, with the kids, no way. I mean, I'm trying to think of what I would do, you know, if someone's... I had pictured the guy standing, like, in the middle of the road. So you have a choice between running him over or stopping. But I don't know. I think then when he approaches the car, that's when you... Speed away, right? Exactly. All the motherly instincts don't seem to be
0: present according to her story. No instincts of a normal human being are in place according to her story. Um, I, I just find it very difficult to believe because if you throw your keys away, you're in a dark, desolate highway. You would hear them hit the bush, you would hear them hit the brown. According to her, she faked it. She threw them, but she kept them in her hand. And the guy runs off. I mean, what is this guy, a retard? Is he retarded or something? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. So so that happens, of course. When someone drives up to the hospital, their children are shot. And everybody's concerned for the children. No one's really paying attention to what happened. And they are, they're not suspecting the mother. However, they begin to get suspicious when she comes to visit her children. And she calls this lover that she has. She's having an affair at this time with a guy by the name of Robert Knickerbocker. He's a married man. He's a former co-worker. I'm thinking at the post office. And, you know, she just begins to call him. And the police know this because he's telling them that. He's telling them that she is stalking him, that she's becoming unstable, And that something's wrong. At the same time, forensics. And this is in the early 80s, so it's not the kind of forensics we have today. But even they don't match the story. There's no gun residue or blood splatter on the driver's side door. Um, And then, of course, Robert Knickerbocker reports to the police that she has a gun. And that she suggested for them to be together that she kill his wife. So there's a lot of things going on here that the police can immediately make two and two makes four. The kids are are dying or dead. She suggested to kill his wife. Maybe she's trying to get rid of her kids so this guy, Robert Ninkerbacher, will stay with her. So she has a lot of stuff going on in her head. And then on top of that, she made no reference to the police that she owned a twenty-two caliber handgun. But not only does her ex, Steven Downs, and Robert tell the police that, the police, they later find out that she bought a gun in Arizona, but they never could find it. But they found the casings he in her house. So where's the gun? Mysteriously, it disappears. Again, another suspicious. Uh, you know, I guess stick falls, another suspicious, you know, eyebrow turner or whatever, you know, it's just something's wrong here. And then, of course, here's the big one. Witnesses say that they saw her driving to the hospital extremely slowly, hoping for the children to die as she gets in, and that's what you can interpret. She's going 5 to 10 miles an hour, and it contradicts what she said that she got there at a high speed, killing herself to be able to save her children. When I witnessed it, saying the opposite. So why would she drive slowly? There's only one logical explanation. She wanted the children to die.
2: Yeah, that is just really, it's amazing that someone would even be capable of that, even after the fact. I I don't know, I just want to think, like, your instinct would kick in or, or something. And, you know, the daughter, Christy, you know, she was having a stroke, and... Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's extremely
0: disturbing to see what was happening here. And look, Christy did live. She had a stroke. And actually, Christy was basically this, the coffin or the, the nail in her coffin. Because after all this stuff starts happening, they, they have enough suspicions to charge her. So it's almost, it's nine months later, it took this long to pick up all the evidence, to talk to people, to see what it was that she was doing beforehand, after, what are her actions after the children were shot. And they arrest her on February the 28th, 1984. And it's nine months after the homicide. And they hit her with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder. And the prosecution's case is basically simple. She shot her children to kill them, to free herself of this the affair with Robert Um You know, there's a lot of problems there, but as I mentioned before, the nail in the coffin is Christine. She actually testifies at her mother's trial. And what does the child say? That her mother shot her and shot her brother and sister. I mean, that is as plain as it can get. There is no way that a eight and now a nine-year-old child is going to testify that the person that shot them was their mother, not a bushy-haired man, her mother. That was enough to get a jury to convict her on all counts. They gave her life in prison plus 50 years. And Matt, before we came on the air, I, I asked you about this because I didn't know what was going on. During her trial, she was pregnant again. I mean, what the heck? She's pregnant again during her trial, meaning that just before her arrest, she was she got pregnant or it happened while she was incarcerated. Any
2: take on that? Well, I've tried to read stuff on the internet. And one of the articles says that it happened while she was on her postal route, which I kind of predicted, I guess. But that's just, you know, there's no real source there. That's an ABC News article. So, yeah, yeah. uh, So Robert Knickerbocker, I guess she was obsessed with him, right? And he didn't want kids. But he didn't mean that she should kill her kids. He was just, I think... I think he was a pretty normal guy as far as I know. He just, he didn't want kids. He wasn't into it. So. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a perfect example right there. You know, he obviously had an affair with her, okay? That's pretty
0: obvious unless it's, you know, she was just in her head. I don't think so. He probably had an affair. And he probably suggested, he probably asked him, do you like kids? He said, no, I don't want any kids. And maybe she took that to mean, look, I'm not going to have the kind of, close relationship with you unless you know you have having kids or I don't want to have kids and having kids is a problem for me she
2: interpreted that as being well he'll be with me if I get rid of my kids now we are assuming or I guess it's pretty obvious assuming she's guilty that she shot herself uh, in an effort to uh, you know to make it look like she was part of the attack but I imagine detectives were a little suspicious that the children were basically shot at point-blank range, and she had, I think, basically a graze wound on her forearm. So how would that kind of play out in a real scenario? Well,
0: it, it's possible. If anything's possible, bullets are flying, the guy's not a marksman, he's not an expert shooter. If it did happen the way she said that this bushy-haired guy, we, we don't know. You know, it's very simple to shoot two kids, three kids, he panicked, she ran at him, she said that they were in a, in a, in a struggle, and he shot her, and that's possible. It's all Those things are all possible. But it does, it, it, look, obviously, she's the one that she, she shot the kids, it's obvious. Her child testified to that. The forensic evidence backs that up. Her suspicious behavior backs that up. But I think you know, more disturbing is when you have to then Realize that this woman's premeditation was pretty, pretty down in there. To so shoot your children and put the gun to your forearm and shoot yourself. And then do this elaborate ruse of driving to the hospital slowly, hoping your kids die. Driving slowly, come on, die, die. And, and assuming they're probably dead now that they've got so far past uh, being brought back that she feels okay to go to a hospital. She's in the car. She's smelling the blood of her children. The car has got blood all over it. It takes a pretty narcissistic person. And look, we could use all these terms like narcissistic, histrionic, antisocial personality disorder, a uh, deviant sociopath. I-, I could sum it up in a better term than the audience Centered, okay? It's a person that's only interested in what they need, their uh, moment, their, their need for whatever it is. And what her need was to secure relationship with Robert Eckerbacher. But even in that sense, although she wanted that, ideally, the relationship with Robert, she would have cheated on him. And we, how do we know this? Well, she had another child a different person in her probably her route It could have been anybody but she obviously she's obviously having sex with somebody else so although Robert Dinkerbacher satisfied a part of her need which was stability a house whatever with this guy she was always ultimately going to cheat on him too because she did it
2: so another interesting thing about this story and this this speaks to the fact that she's pretty smart and kind of a calculating person, and she was able to escape from prison after she was sentenced, right?
0: Yeah, and it wasn't an easy escape. I actually saw this thing on a special on the news when it was happening, this is years ago. And yeah, on July 11th, 1987, she escapes from her cell in a prison by scaling an 18-foot razor wire wall. And she takes off, she's free for 10 days. They can't find her, and the, by the way, her children were adopted. I I believe two of them were adopted by the actual prosecutor in the case, so he felt so terrible for these children, he wanted to give them a stable home, so he adopted them. When she escaped, a number of people believed that she would come after her children, either to kill them, or to somehow, in some self-centered delusion go to save her kids or something. Um, But when they investigated carefully, they found uh, correspondence with a person, a male, and they traced it to another home. They went there, and she was there, um, and they captured her 10 days later. But she is calculating. She uses people very well. Um, She is a person that uses every facility she has in order to gain an advantage or gain the position that she wants here she used the guy so she can basically go there if she escapes, that's exactly what she did um look, Calculating, very intelligent, um, there's a lot of stuff about her, I read the book by Anne Rule about her, it's called Small Sacrifices and, um there was also a movie made about her that starred the late Farrah Fawcett, also by the same name, Small Sacrifices. So there's been a lot of interest in this story, Matt. Um, look, she has been denied parole. She was actually eligible for parole for 25 years. And she went before a parole hearing first in 2008. And she, from all accounts, she told the parole board that she was innocent that the bushy-haired guy did it. And she went back to a parole hearing in 2010 with the same story, they denied it. The parole board said that she was not accepting of the responsibilities of what she did, um, that she was narcissistic. And then 10 years later in 2020, which is a couple of years ago, she went before a parole hearing again to get out and they denied her again. She has not once admitted to what she did. And that's a huge point in these parole hearings. You have to accept responsibility. You have to rehabilitate yourself. And with Diane Downs, it doesn't seem that it's going to happen. And funny thing, she was transferred from the Oregon prison system to a California prison. She's now in California here, in California, doing time at an institution um, because of the escape and the dangers she poses. So, yeah, she's being denied. I don't think she's going to get out for any time soon.
2: Yeah, she says says something like uh, it's an inconvenience to her. Yeah, let's just talk about her personality. Yeah,
0: well, regarding her lack of remorse. in, in, In her brain, she's playing the story that she's innocent. So how could she have remorse if she didn't do anything? So that is the excuse. I've heard a number of times guys in prison that I know are guilty. I can smell a guilty person a mile away. And their narrative is always, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry the person's dead, but I, why should I have remorse? I didn't do anything. This isn't something I can admit to because I can do it. This is the type of mind frame she has. But So let's play devil's advocate here. Let's just say for a moment that Matt is innocent of killing his pet tarantula. And, you know, they put him in jail for it. But he is actually innocent because his girlfriend did it. How does Matt show remorse if he's actually innocent? And this is the logic that a person who is narcissistic and lying is using in their mind. I can't show remorse because I didn't do it. So do you see kind of that working in the same token, if the person actually is innocent, how are they going to show remorse? I don't know how that works. And it's one of those things I always talk about that when I teach each class in the yard about accepting responsibility. This is not applicable to a person who actually is innocent because
2: how do you do that? How do you admit to doing something you didn't do? Yeah, we talked about that with Tookie Williams. You know, he was executed essentially because he wouldn't admit to a crime and and i think there was some doubt about that and and you kind of you had some doubt right and he he would never admit that he was guilty and that came off as that he was unremorseful yeah that's it's very difficult when
0: yeah with someone I, mean, I knew turkey williams personally and and he always tried to help children get away from gang life and all this stuff so he, he it seemed like he did all the steps that a person who is obviously remorseful about the circumstances but not so much about the case itself because in his his words i didn't commit those crimes so yes this is kind of that same narrative and people who are actually guilty that take on that narrative it's kind of hard to blame them for doing it because they're sticking to their guns but we know because of forensic evidence and she did commit those crimes, and her daughter says she committed those crimes. But even more so, Matt. I mean, I haven't had a chance to see her on television. I think vaguely I saw something years ago. I believe it may have been sixty minutes or twenty twenty. They had an interview and showed a piece of her talking. She talks like there's no remorse for even the circumstances. There's there's no motherly grief for a child that she bore and she raised that right there is what gets me run away. And I, I can see that she's her psychological makeup. is one of a person who
2: is guilty, but he's playing the part. Even right after the shooting, she would appear and she would talk to people and she would be kind of bubbly. She'd almost be joking around and just very glib. And regardless of how you, uh, Cope with tragedy, and people do respond different ways. No one responds that way. She she just appeared to have such a lack of concern that her children were shot. It was like she was just taking a walk in the park. This is just another day for me. And you know, they honed in on that. That was a a marker. But how someone can do that, I think, is what we're all kind of still wondering. Yeah, it's, it's something that it's- it really bothers me because if, if you're an
0: intelligent person, and she was, she's not—you know—completely dumb. You would think the first thing you would do is study how a person acts after something tragic happens to them. And she missed that completely because if she's being glib, she's joking about it; it's not that big of a deal. People are going to take it that way. Now, I do know that people act different in different. Some people get very quiet. They don't say much. They don't show outward tears. Look, everybody responds to tragedy different. I know this for a fact. I've seen different people act different things, totally different. Look, I saw a guy stabbed in front of me. Instead of him, like, clenching his chest and, oh, my God, I'm going to die, nothing. He simply got up. He wasn't, it was almost like his mind shut down, and he wasn't that there was a hole in his chest and he basically just looked at straight ahead, walked to the gate blood is pouring out of his chest they put handcuffs on and he continued to walk and suddenly he just collapsed so I've seen both sides of this nobody acts the same tragedy some people cry some people become hysterical some people don't do anything so it's hard to really judge a person. You have 60 seconds remaining. But the interesting thing, Matt, is that those people usually act that way a very short time after it's happened or immediately after, because their their brain, their body is still processing the process. After a day, after two days, they usually begin to act pretty consistently. She doesn't. That tells me a lot.
2: Yeah, so let's pivot to your studies, your ongoing project here for a minute in relation to dying down. So you talk to these killers all the time, and most of them, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, claim that they're not guilty. So when you talk to them, do you presume that they're guilty, or do you hear them out? And how do you tell, how do you form your opinion on whether they're guilty or not. So I'm not talking about uh, a Bill Suff who's you know been convicted of killing you know a dozen people. That's really obvious, but but more of a a case where you want to maybe give a benefit of the doubt. Like how do you assess someone's guilt based on their behavior, based on ticks and things like that? Well, it's obviously very hard. What I look for is
0: consistency. And I'm the first one to admit, I have not run across many innocent guys in prison. And the majority of them, contrary to what everybody believes, that everybody in prison says are innocent, most of the guys here say that they're guilty. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the shooter, I'm the, I'm the killer. A lot of guys just say it. There's, And some guys just don't talk about it. But the guys that really don't go around telling people they're innocent, but you can tell by their position in their case that they're fighting it very hard and their their has always been innocence. You can always tell how they act. And I, I know people say, well how do you tell? Do they they run around with a knife in their hand, stalking people? No. It's their overall generalization, how they how they generally speak to people, how they generally act. They don't consider they don't continue with the same type of behavior. Most guys have a particular, like, they stand off a bit sometimes. Sometimes if they do contact people or talk to people, they don't get very close to them. Um, they feel like they're, it almost feels like they're awkwardly in the wrong place. There are a lot of different things, and every person is different, as I've said. And I, it, it, for me, it's consistent. And I have the opportunity to sit here and watch these guys over years, over decades. So I'm able to pinpoint how they act. That is how I can tell. That's the advantage I have over any, basically, law enforcement or any person, psychiatrist, psychologist, because I'm with these guys 24-7 out there. I listen to their conversations on the pier. I watch I walk by the cell, I look inside the cell how it's set up. what kind of what does it tell me? A lot of behavioral traits about people tell me little pieces. they don't tell me the whole picture. They give me little pieces, and over years, I can form a pretty accurate picture of that person and then the question comes is, is that a person in line with that crime? Let me give you a quick example. A person who's accused of the rape and murder of a child and this guy lives down a tear from me usually those type of people that murder children are pedophiles you can tell by the television programs they watch what they're interested in okay it can be cartoons it can be little kids show very young adolescent show they tend to watch those shows a lot there are other people let call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded the kind of magazines they collect held by that. When they're on the yard, who will they hang around with? What kind of pictures do they see? All the guys in prison look for pictures. They want pictures of women. If the guy has a highly high libido, he's looking for pictures of girls so he can look at them. Uh, same thing with pedophiles. So there's there's actions that come with uh, conduct that I look for. And these are very difficult traits to, to analyze, but with time, I'm able to do that. And that's how I form a profile of that particular person. And I can you it's not perfect, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it's not a, a, a 100% science, but I get pretty close to judging a person's conduct with their actions, and I can give you an assessment
2: whether that person did it or not. Is it true, at least I would imagine, if it were me, if I was in prison for something I didn't do, I think I would be extremely angry. However... I've seen, you know, even the West Memphis Three and and the Fairbanks Four and some of these guys, they don't always appear that way. I don't know if you can be angry every day, but um, how does that work? Yeah, you can be angry every day. You may not outwardly show
0: it. And again, it goes to the person's character and how every person is different, how they internalize, can they compartmentalize a conviction that's untrue? Look, I know for a fact... I said I've met very few people in prison who are completely innocent, but I have met a person who's innocent, 100% innocent. And it's really strange how that person deals with it. I believe that person, and the one I knew, he compartmentalized it. He, um, I know he found it very difficult to associate with other people here. There, I could tell there was anger under the surface. There was no cues. He wasn't seeking out pornography. He wasn't seeking out visits every week. He wasn't seeking out the normal things. He would go months without going to the store, even though he had money. He was very quiet. He didn't say a whole lot. Um, He never got into arguments with people. There's a lot of different things that piqued my interest about him. And then I began to really get to observe him. It turns out that he was innocent. You know, DNA evidence revealed later that he was innocent. That's a huge, huge deal there. So it's not an exact science. It depends on the person who's profiled the person who's the observer. Um, given time, I can usually give you a pretty good idea of if the person is innocent and whether they're remorseful or not, and whether it's probably going to happen again because of his actions
2: and his conduct while he's here. Yeah. Well, I guess we can wrap it up there. What a crazy lady! Uh, are there male prison guards? You think in the female prison she's in?
0: Absolutely. All see, there's a huge rule in California under- corrections, which is equality, you inclusion. You want they, they put female uh, officers to work in male prisons, and they put male uh, guards to work in. In female prison. I don't know if that's a good idea, but it does happen. And I mean, well, how can you stand w- in a way? How can you stand away of a, of, a, of a woman that wants to become a fireman or whatever? You really can't these days. So yeah, they do work in both sides of prison. Both genders work.
2: Well, what are the odds that she's uh, having some inclusion with one of these guys? If you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, it's very possible. Look, it happens
2: in prisons for male. Uh, pres- well, it's been interesting. Thank you, Bill. It's been interesting as always. Everyone, check out Bill's website. What's the website again? Artist,
0: and and Instagram is William.Noguera.art. Sign up for
2: the newsletter. Yeah, and I'm going to put those on the Patreon account, which you can check out at patreon.com slash Diaries. Also, check out Spotify. Check out all this stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm William DeGaro. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.